Well, we learned last week that uh, the man Jesus could sleep through a storm. And I appreciate much feedback, really, from the message last week. I was struck by, even though the story was so familiar, how it uh, made a difference for many of you who are feeling the storm. And he was so trusting in God and that there he could rest even during the storm and yet when in the disciples in the midst of their uh, uh, fearfulness, he calms the storm. And I described him as a man of calm. And it's just so striking for me because I know that in my life and my personality, the way sometimes I've been oriented, I wouldn't describe myself as a man of calm. I'd like that attribute. Well, in our story today, he uh, gets off the boat in this non-Jewish region. And he doesn't go after someone to minister to. Rather, a man comes to him. And while the disciples had asked the question, Remember in our text last week, after he calms the storm, who is this man? This man that comes to him in our story today knew Jesus instantly, even though they'd never met. And the man says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God, a man who was terrified of Jesus, yet also needed the Savior's calm. Now, the man was quite a personality. You might remember some of the details from what Kurt just read to us. He had no home, he had no clothes. He lived in the cemetery. That would have been pretty well off-putting to everyone. Running around naked. Just highly unusual and disturbing thing to do. And the man possessed demons. The demons weren't friendly or cute like uh, Casper the Ghost or the minions in Despicable Me. These demons, these evil spirits are many. They're legion, equivalent to several thousand soldiers. And while demons feel like a mystery to us, Imagine the demon as evil spiritual soldiers that took over in this man's life. And even though he had been tied up, as an indicator of the strength of the evil spirit, he had powerfully and violently broken his chains. And not surprisingly, one of the results of allowing evil to take hold in his life or in your life, 
social isolation. And Jesus commands the Spirit to come out of the man just like He had commanded the winds and the waves in our story last week. And just as He had demonstrated authority over the winds and the waves, He now demonstrates His authority over the demons. The demons possessed by the man were sent by Jesus into the pigs. And we could talk about that one for a good part of the day. So it's kind of a quirky bit of Scripture. But if you could take a moment to think about this, these pigs are everywhere. Of course, it's a non-Jewish area, and that this would be appropriate for them, but maybe not so much for the Jews. And the and the pigs went rushing and squealing down the bank. And you can see them, if you will, thrashing in the water. The scene is vivid, it is hideous, it is chaotic, and it results in mass carnage. As pig after pig died in the lake, and one writer described it as plunged involuntarily into the abyss of the sea. I think it, at the very least, demonstrates the violent and uncontrollable nature of evil. And Jesus condemned evil to drown it in its own chaos. This encounter was no small thing. Our text says in Luke 8, 34, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out. And I want you to hear this. Sitting at Jesus' feet. Dressed. And in his right mind. And they were afraid. Jesus changes the man radically. He has been healed, delivered, we might use the word saved, a radical new life, dressed in his right mind, re-socialized, and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then what do all the local people make of it? Well, they're scared. Scared because of this foreigner, this Jewish man causing havoc to their economy. Losing a herd of pigs is no small loss. And meanwhile, the man wants to go with Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. That's extraordinary because Jesus has been inviting others to follow him, but this time... This particular man, at least, Jesus discourages him from following, and rather he says, stay here. You tell your story. 
The text says it this way. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Lord, as we make interpretation of this text and application for our lives today, may your Spirit guide. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a quote this week that said, what we learn in the presence of God cannot be learned in the presence of men. And all week, the Lord against, at times, my personal will, and I was taken out of the commission in the middle of the week and was sick, and away from the presence to a certain degree of other people, has been taking me deeper into the realm of the invisible. And I pray the spiritual. And while I am no saint, I ran across, across Paul Thigman's book that sets forth the personal struggle of the great saints of church history. And the title of the book is Saints Who Battled Satan. And Thigpen tells of personal confrontation and temptations and struggles and assaults and victories that were experienced by St. Francis of Assisi, Teresa of Avila, John Vianney, at Vianney High School, Ignatius of Loyola, many, many others through Christian history. And in my journey this week, seeing again the fuller biblical worldview, which in these days is very easy for preachers as well as the rest of us, to lose. It struck me in line with what Peggy's been told us and shared with us in our communion this morning, the deeper seriousness of sin. Personal sin, first of all, and I'm talking about our own selfishness, and our lust that so quickly gets out of control, and greed that's just a bear sometimes pawing at us. And then idolatry, 
allowing other things to become more important than the Lord Jesus. And so to use a phrase from another book by John Bevere, the bait of Satan is there, just waiting to put the hook in us until it will seemingly be too late. So I want to say it this way, like with the demoniac man, the demonic forces are still at work. You see, in the Bible, Satan, while we certainly can't understand everything about him because it's not revealed all that much in Scripture, in some ways, Satan is and has a mind, a will. And while there is much about him that we cannot understand or explain, some things are clear. The devil, to use another name for him, is in the business of destroying. Destroying lives. And it could maybe is put no more simplified way than John 10.10. He comes to kill and steal and destroy. And he'd like to outwit us. 2 Corinthians 2.11. So we must be aware of his scheming. And I believe that as we see God more clearly, we correspondingly see the realities of these spiritual forces even more vividly. It's a strange paradox. You see, the Bible paints the picture again and again that there is a cosmic system of this invisible world. But this has been screened out of our naturalistic thinking. Most of us are materialist. We see only in terms of our senses. So we do not notice and we do not see and we do not speak of this world that the Bible speaks of, a world marked by a passage like Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not, but against rulers. Is he talking about rulers on earth or rulers in heaven? Against authorities? against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly realms. Here's my question. 
I was asking myself again and again, do we better understand our world by screening out these realities or seeing the world as the Bible sees it? You see, the Bible understands that there are powers, powers of darkness, powers of evil. And these powers are invested or embedded not only in our hearts, but, but also in the entire cosmos some way, both seen and unseen. I would suggest that they are in our systems, they are in our institutions, they are in our corporations, they are in our legislation, they are in our culture. Now, like with the demoniac man, these demonic forces are still at work. Let me give you a little quote from the Chalmers Center website, and the Chalmers Center has been set up to help uh, churches particularly tackle the problem of poverty in this country. But I want to just read a couple, a quote. Indeed, what else would we call it when one group of people sets themselves over another in who they consider truly human and worthy of love and care. And what else would we call it when a class of people sets another class of people as tools for their own economic prosperity? Next slide. What else do we call it but demonic when people refuse to hear the cries of their fellow human beings simply because listening well and acting justly would require changing in their own behavior and sacrificing their comfort. It seems as though To me, the recent death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis is a shocking illustration of how something right, law enforcement, policing, can go so quickly wrong. And it's not as simple as somehow reducing it to a bad apple, but a system that is bad, a cultural, systemic abuse of power. Here's the thing. We can often see this so clearly in the other, but it's so hard to see this in ourselves. We see it in Nazism, for instance, but we have a much more difficult time when it comes to racism 
or classism or sexism. The work of Walter Wink in books like The Powers That Be give a smidgen of insight into how these powers work in our society. And if we look with a desire for justice and the heart of Jesus, we too will see with the eyes of God and can begin to act upon what we see. For it is this man of God who got off the boat determined to love all. That had already been settled in his heart. So when there's a crazy Naked, isolated, combative, fear-invoking, self-mutilating tormentor from a different background and a different culture, he sets him free. Giving him back his body, his mind, his emotions, his spirit, his family, his neighbors. That's a story to tell. Church, I don't think we're so much unlike this man with demons as we might believe. We need at least two things. Number one, more than to try to be good, more than to try to skate along in the patterns of this world. If, we're think, if we think we're already pretty good, try to be better, to somehow help ourselves, we need Jesus. Only the power of the Son of the Most High God can deal with the powers of evil. We need God's grace to change us from the inside out, to be converted. We need to admit the way sin has or is possessing us and is shaping us, the ways that we are, are being corrupted, and throw ourselves again at the mercy of the God who can calm our soul and thereby change our neighborhood. We need the power of the Son of the Most High to set us free, just like this man. And then we need to pray to Jesus, to pray to the Son of the Most High, 
I, I, I saw it again and again this week. From the early church to the Christian saints throughout history to fighting spiritual battles today, if we want to be something and believe something more than, as I said to the Bible class last Sunday, the parenting class up on the fourth floor, MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. If we want a deeper biblical faith, Something deeper than MTD. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in prayer. You've got to figure that out. You have got to figure that out. I'm not talking about just saying a prayer before a meal. I'm talking about wrestling with the Lord. To grow in the grace that He has given. And as believers, as ones who have been baptized, to ones who have overcome because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and being brought in to this kingdom, as, as ones who have already participated in that through our repentance and our baptism, if you haven't, I want to invite you to do that. But if you have, then, then, then we pray and we pray and we fight from victory. From victory. Not for victory. We pray from victory. Only Jesus can calm the storm on the outside and the storm on the inside of your heart.